This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your host, Nabil Mahmood, today from Honolulu, Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host from Montclair, New Jersey. And Tim Crawford, joining you from sunny Los Angeles. Tim, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Get, let's get to know you a little bit. Share a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and thanks for having me on the program. Uh, so a little bit about me. I'm the CIO and strategic advisor for AVOA. I also have my own podcast, The CIO in the Know, in which I host. And my history has really been that of a leader of IT. Uh, spent over 30 years leading IT organizations, mostly large enterprise. And now I serve more as an advisor or CIO at large for companies both on the sell side as well as the buy side, uh, helping transform organizations and understanding how they can really kind of leverage the role of the CIO and evolve the CIO um, as well as technology. How did you get started in technology? What was your starting point? Oh, gosh. <laughs> now I have to really <laughs> kind of scratch the head a little bit. Um, this is the actually, psychology portion of our <laughs> podcast. So it all started. <laughs> it all started way ago. back when, if I could remember that far back. No, it, I, I distinctly remember it. Um, I was helping a friend of mine, and this goes back into the 80s, um, helping a friend of mine who had a computer at home, which was not that common. And uh, took it into a shop, a local shop, to have them look at it and figure out what was wrong with it. And I was curious about computers at the time. And so I asked a lot of questions and, and uh, the person working there at the time said, hey, you know, you seem to know a lot about these computer things. Um, would you like a job working as a bench tech, working on these IBM compatible computers? Um, and I'm like, That'd be cool. And so then that led to designing networks uh, for firms in the Bay Area. And then that kind of blossomed into leading a small IT organization and then on and on and on. And um, over the um, probably the, the last two thirds of my career, most of my career has been spent uh, in this space, but uh, the latter part of it has been with top uh, organizations in each of their industry. So typically number one or number two in their particular space. So companies like organizations like Stanford University, All Covered, Konica Minolta, um, National Semiconductor, Philips Electronics, Knight Ritter, et cetera. The, um, you know, what's, what's interesting about, uh, let's call it members of our generation um, in, in this world is that we had the benefit of just, just being at the forefront, you know, the, uh, the, the original guys at the frontier where you know there were no rules, there was no there was no knowledge to have. It was just you know all learning by experience, which I've always found to be you know the most valuable way to, to learn anything is by breaking it and putting it back together. Um, and we had the benefit of being able to do that. Um, you know when when you enter technology, I, I I don't imagine you had formalized training, um, you know scholastically or or otherwise in in technology. Did you have a particular track that you thought? you were headed on prior to, you know, discovering your love for computers? 
Yeah, I absolutely did. And that's actually part of the story. Um, I started in high school uh, working with electronics and we actually had a shop program that was designed around electronics. So you had like metal shop and wood shop and auto shop. Um, But this particular high school that I went to had an electronics program. And so I thought that's where I would go is into designing semiconductors and working with um, electronic engineering, a little different than electrical engineering uh, is a major. And so when I started down that path, I started working with computers because there was this newfangled uh, product that had come out called AutoCAD and you were designing circuit boards. And so as I was going through the classes, I was really quick to be able to do my work and I'd be sitting there doing nothing in front of this computer. And I'm like, what else can this computer do? And so it very quickly became clear to me that electronic engineering was not where I needed to be. And that I was more fascinated on the possibility, the art of the possible for the computer. And I switched majors to um, computer information systems and then the rest is history. But even after that, I still felt that there was this connection between computers and technology and business. And so that's what ultimately drove me to get an MBA in international business, which is finding that intersection between technology and business, because it's not just tech for tech's sake, and it never has been for me. But I think as you go through that journey, you start to see how these different points connect. So what have you learned over the last uh, decade or two of your career uh, as, as far as how the technology has been integrated into our lives and uh, what are the driving forces or the enablers behind all of it? You know, the first thing is we have a lot to learn as a people, as, a, as humans, in terms of where we use technology and frankly, where we shouldn't use technology. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of great opportunities that we haven't even started to scratch the surface on. And I even tell folks if at this stage, if we were to stop innovating, meaning we stop designing, stop innovating, stop producing new technology today. There is so much opportunity and so much technology that's already in the marketplace today to consume. That would take us years down the path. So technology is moving faster than we can in other ways. Um, the other problem is that we haven't kind of given up on that um, almost drunkenness that comes around technology, right? That tech for tech's sake, hey, this is cool stuff. And we need to start shifting that to think more around data and more around the relevance of it and where it really kind of fits in so that we have a healthy balance of leveraging technology where it's meaningful, but then also setting it to the side when, you know what, this is not the place to do it. And I think case in point, you know, we can use video conferencing is a means to interact with other human beings. But at some point in time, we need that face-to-face connection. We need to get out from behind the camera or in front of the camera and actually meet people face-to-face. So understanding that balance and where where to leverage it, that's probably the biggest thing. You know, what's, what's interesting is that, you know, obviously, particularly as it relates to the pandemic, uh, but, but even prior to the pandemic, you know, technology is being used as an enablement tool in, in education um, and, you know, kids that are 
um, that, that, that are born and, 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 and young kids are, are utilizing technology at earlier and earlier ages. I mean, I say that the best nanny we've ever had is an iPad, right? Um, and I'm sure most of the parents would agree with that. Um, but what strikes me, and we've mentioned on the podcast before, is that the way kids are, are being educated, the educational system hasn't really evolved to, 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 to meet that, that new reality of how technology is so ensconced, not just in you know, early childhood, but throughout, um, you know, throughout every vertical, um, no, matter, no matter what um, career someone selects. Um, do you have any insight into, you know, what types of changes, uh, if, if any, you think should be done in the way we're educating children or, or the educational system more broadly um, that, that would, you know, create that sort of perspective, insight, et cetera? Yeah, there, there are a couple things that, that come to mind. I mean, one thing is, you know, every baby with an iPad in their hand. Um, the downside of that is you start to create somewhat of an addiction to screens. Um, and so they don't, they don't necessarily learn how to be a kid. Um, you know, they're, they're drawn toward, you know, whether it's gaming or, or some other um, component, they're drawn to that computer screen. And I've seen a number of kids that they'd rather be in front of their computer screen playing a game than they would being outside riding their bike or interacting with other kids or playing with a ball. Um, and I'm not saying that that's unhealthy. I'm just saying that it's important to have a good balance between them. And I think we forget as a father that. of two, I can, I can say it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. Yeah. I've, I've been fortunate just because our kids do have that healthy balance and they'd rather be outside than be in front of a screen, which I'm grateful for. Um, but I also know other kids that are quite the opposite. They would rather not interact. And so in some cases it's led to social issues with those kids as they've started to grow up because they don't necessarily know how to, how to not be socially awkward with, with other folks. Um, so I think the balance is important, but then the second piece that the pandemic has really kind of shown us is how much work we have to do to get technology in the hands of the, um, underprivileged and disadvantaged folks around the country, just in the U S alone, let alone the globe, you know, the globe is even worse off, but how many folks have we seen that they need to go to school, but they don't have a computer in the home. You know, the three of us could be sitting here and we could count the number of devices we have in our house. Right. I, I know in my smart home, I have over 50 devices and I don't even run a computer lab. I counted like six microphones earlier in, 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 in your house. So, yeah. <laughs> but then you have a lot of families, and I live here in Southern California, you look at Los Angeles, there are a lot of families that they don't have a computer. You know, maybe the only computer technically that they have in the house is a smartphone. And so what do we do for these folks? Or if they can get a computer, are they in a place where they're able to get high-speed internet access? And if they can get a computer and can get high-speed internet access, assuming let's say the school system provides them with a tablet or a computer, can they afford it? And so I think there are these, these fundamental hurdles, social and economic hurdles that we have to stop and think about how we address. Otherwise, we're going to continue down a path of the haves and have-nots, which is going to be really, really problematic as we go forward. And I think those are some things that we talk about today. My concern is, will we still be talking about this a year from now? 
two years from now, five years from now? And will there be programs to help these folks for the next time there's maybe not a pandemic, but maybe there's a critical storm that comes through or a snow day or some other uh, impact to their ability to physically go into the classroom? I mean, a great another great way to think about this is think of all the times if you have kids that they might have been ill. They can't go into school because maybe they're still on the downside of the fever, but they could be sitting in front of a tablet or a screen and at least observing the class and not missing out on it. These are great opportunities for technology, but we have, we have some core hurdles to get over first. And I think that's going to be important for those of us that, that have the means to be able to help those folks out. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's the entire reason why uh, we started this whole initiative of Nomad Futurist. This is how it really came about. And as a matter of fact, when Phil and I started on this journey a year and a half ago, there was general talks of COVID-19. It wasn't really as mass marketed or streamlined as it has been over the last 16, 17 months. In, in your role and capacity and conversations that you have with other executives and companies, how do you think this digital and social divide that's been created and that's been really brought forth because of the COVID-19 situation, what are they trying to do and how are they trying to overcome this barrier, particularly with the next generation? My gosh, we could we could spend hours just kind of unpacking that. Um, kind of in a nutshell, what I would say is that it's confusing. It's really confusing. You know, it's one thing when everybody's going into the office and it's the same thing if everybody's remote. Um, you have a very clear way in which people are going to connect or not. When you move into more of a hybrid scenario of working, or you start to create forced cultures around people have to come back into the office, um, that's when kind of the, the wheels start coming off the rails. Um, Hybrid. Let's let's maybe unpack that for a minute. You know, when you when you look at how, let's say, the three of us working together, um, you know, one of the CIOs that I that I have conversations with here in Southern California, it, they did a, a study and found that most of their employees have an hour and fifteen minute commute each way. And so, what happens if Nabil, you're going into the office today to work face to face with us? But Phil and I decided that we're going to be remote that day. So now you've just committed two and a half hours of your day to commuting into the office only to jump on Zoom or Teams or whatever system to connect with us remotely. And then the other problem is how do you know who's going to be in the office and how do you set up your office and be smart about how you do that? It gets really complicated. So that's one aspect. The second piece is if you look at these organizations that are mandating that employees must come back into the office, and we've seen stories uh, in a number of companies, you know, or a number of uh, outlets from the Atlantic to the Wall Street Journal um, talking about this, but people are, are responding with their feet. They're basically saying to a large degree, look, if you're going to force me to have to do that commute or come back into the office, guess what? I'm leaving. I'm gone. And so I think it's going to have a, a pretty dramatic impact on a couple of different aspects. One is how we think about um, retention and hiring, how we start to bring people into the fold and support a more permanent remote work scenario or hybrid scenario, which then gets back to my first complexity. Um, the second piece is 
we have to think about culturally how we're going to manage our organization. Now, now let's make, let's not be confused about this. I really want to get out of my house. I want to meet someone in person that is not my family in a place that's not my house. <laughs> but at the same time, I like the fact that, you know, I can, in fact, I was just on a call with a group of CIOs this morning and we were talking about this. There's something to be said about being able to get up in the morning, take your shower, do your workout, maybe not in that order, um, and then walk down the hall and, and be in your office. Um, on the other hand, there's also something to be said about that separation between home and work. And it's nice to be able to go to an office and realize that, okay, this is the place where I actually do work and create that, that mental separation. And I think we've, we've forgotten about that over the last year, but I think some of that will come back and kind of pull people or draw people back into an office environment to some degree. But again, we have to figure out what that balance looks like. And I don't think anybody knows. We're just going to have to be flexible as we kind of go through the next year or so. And I think that's the name of the game, right? Flexibility is the name of the game. I think for each person has their own set of, of um, you know, uh, proclivities, uh, you know, the ability, some type of scenario in which they are most productive based on their family situation, based on, you know, where they live, based on what their commute times are. And I think that organizations are going to have to, you know, provide the, the type of leeway if they want to get the most efficiency out of their workforce to allow people to, in some ways, control their own destiny, which will create theoretically a happier workforce and, you know, a more productive workforce, mm -hmm. but it's almost like the gigification of, you know, the entire economy where every person is their own little kind of consultant, their own little island where they have to make determinations on their own, as opposed to having, you know, a regimented day. Like I wake up in the morning, I go into the office, I come home and, you know, dinner is ready at 6.30. That's never been the work my, my life, but I understand from watching TV that that's how it used to happen. Um, so it's, uh, you know, everyone's going to have to start thinking in terms of, um, you know, what's best for themselves and to a certain extent, you know, what's best for the culture of their, their own organization. You're absolutely right. And this is one of the recommendations I had for teams as we started into the pandemic is help your teams understand where their workspace is. And this may sound very tactical or um, prescriptive, but it's incredibly important from a psychological standpoint. So even if they have that one bedroom apartment or that studio apartment, help them understand that they need a space that is where they work. And that could be where they set up their laptop or tablet, but all they do there is work. They don't do their bills. They don't, they don't surf Facebook or, or do personal things there. They only do work there. And then the rest of their home or the rest of their space is their home environment. And so it helps from a mental standpoint of kind of creating that separation of work and um, personal, which is something, you know, we talk about the, the work-life balance uh, quite a bit, but do we actually do that? And so as we've gotten into the pandemic, I don't know about, about the two of you and others listening, but, you know, it's, I have found that. I can break up my day and it's perfectly okay if I need to run out, run an errand and come back and do some other work. And then maybe I work late that night to make up the difference. I'm still putting in the time, but how I put in the time has changed. 
And I, th- and I see this playing out time and time again. And this kind of gets back to how we work is changing as much as where we work. Yeah, so we, we talk about life and work balance. Life comes in first. Do you see in your experience that there is a generational divide as well, whereby the baby boomers, they, they have managed their businesses and how they go about working by the bums in the seats in the number of cars in the parking lot to the digital nomads, the millennials and the generation X, Y, and Z that can create that separation of duties and responsibility and segregate them out. Do you think that's been a part of the issue over the last 16 months? Absolutely has. And I think we're going to see that play out in spades over the next six to 12 months too, as we start to talk about this return to work, whatever that looks like. Um, Absolutely. I will characterize based on the conversations I've had with executives and and C-suite members. um, There, there most definitely is an age component that comes into play. So older generations definitely are more prone to feeling more comfortable being in the office and having their, their employees in the office, physically in an office, um, not working remotely. They view remote work as, and I'm over-characterizing a bit to make the point, but because not everybody fits this mold, but to a large degree, they believe that anyone who is not in the office isn't necessarily putting in the full amount of work potential as they could. On the other hand, the younger folks, they're perfectly comfortable with a more flexible approach, you know, whether it's the, maybe not as much the X, but when you get into Y and Z generations, you know, and we're starting to see the Z generations are getting ready to enter the workforce, you know, Y is, is firmly in the workforce. There's definitely a lot more, um, a lot more interest in a more flexible approach. But one of the things I am seeing from some of the Z generation folks is almost a middle ground between the two. They want the flexibility, but they also want a little more structure than maybe what what the millennials and and younger folks wanted. So I think it'll be interesting to see kind of how how this pendulum kind of plays out from one extreme to the other. I think part of it is, you know, similar to what we talked about in terms of, you know, our entry into technology, having had the perspective and the experience of life before technology being part of all elements of our lives and life after it. And because we had those kind of two experiences that almost exactly um, hit, you know, the halfway mark in our lives where half our life was spent prior to and half our life was spent after that, you know, a lot of the kids coming into the workforce today, when you have a lot of this, you know, capacity for flexibility, have a desire to experience that kind of madmen, you know, collaborative work environment where you have a little brief briefcase and 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 the tie, and you go into an office. Um, and I think it's it's you 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 hit the nail on the head, and we're repeating the same point over and over again. But um, it, it 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 needs to continue to be said that it's incumbent upon an organization to create an environment that allows for people to you know experience from an organization all of the areas that allow them to be as productive as possible. So to the extent that you have the ability to come into the, to come into some office, maybe you don't need as much office space because you don't need to, to have, you know, a seat for every bum as Nabil likes to right. say, but you, you have a collaborative space for people to come to where you're not entirely remote. Um, and, and you also have to prioritize 
coming together for offsites, maybe, you know, depending on how your organization is structured, either having it in a particular region or shifting it around where you can get FaceTime, you can get, you know, those types of personal relationships that you simply cannot. There is no technology around today. And I've seen all of them, all of these kind of virtual networking roundtables. To me, they're all like, it's, 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 it's hilarious that people think that that's going to be a way um, to experience your social uh, interaction. I'll be more poignant. The vast majority of them really suck. Um, they're really, they're taking a complete. We got Tim Crawford to say suck on the air and win yeah, fancy I, microphone. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> the, look, I've seen them. I've worked with them both as a presenter, as well as a recipient, you know, kind of attending these sessions. Um, I think people are just trying too hard to create these virtual experiences that try and mimic the personal face-to-face uh, -face, in-person experience. And I have to say just full stop. Full stop. Like it's, it's gotten just really overboard where there's so much complexity and so much technology that gets thrown into it that you've almost lost the ability to just focus on the personal piece because you're just focused on, okay, how do I make this work? Where do I need to go? Oh, I need and it's to go so here. awkward. I mean, it's, it's so awkward. It is. It is. And so that's why I think, you know, keep it simple and, you know, tools like Zoom and, and Teams, I think are are great uh, at getting done what you need to do. But yeah, these virtual platforms, I'm definitely not a fan of them. And I'll be glad when we when we have the ability to have uh, physical events where I can go out and I can meet people again. I probably won't be doing that as much as I used to. But you know, there there's also another piece that that we have to think about here. And as we enter into the summer months now, this summer is going to be very different than last summer. So you recall, you know, last summer, you know, the kids come home, there's a lot of summer um, things that you would normally do that you can't do. So summer was just another month in the year. This year, however, you have kids that are vaccinated. Uh, at least you look at a place here like California. I mean, both of my kids, I have a 16 year old and a 13 year old. They're both now fully vaccinated. And um, as well as my wife and I, now we're at a point where, okay, you can have kids over, you can get to a point where you could have things happening in the house. Now, why is that different now versus last summer? From a business standpoint, I didn't have to worry about kids you know, playing and having a great time and making noise in the house and maybe interrupting my video call. This summer, I have to be conscious of that. And so that might force me to look for another place to go to so that they can be kids, they can enjoy their summer, have a great time off. And I have my place that I go to work. And this kind of gets back to where's your work environment and where's your home environment. And I'm, struck by, I'm, I'm struck by how much of this is almost psychological. Like we, we need to find a way to communicate and and I'm certainly in the technology world. We're not known to be the best communicators in the world, but we need. There's a self awareness and almost like you know in the '90s when when the real the real world came out uh, on MTV, they used to have like that was the first forum I think where they had these little sessions where you know people would get video talking about their feelings and interactions with others. We have to as a society, but certainly as the, you know as a technical society, uh, technolog the technologists, uh, as it were. 
uh, become so much better at how we communicate our feelings and how we communicate about things that you wouldn't normally have to communicate about. Um, that you know, it's it's yet another discipline that 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 we have to get comfortable with. Yeah, uh, with sharing. You know, it's something that that has been mentioned to me in in yet another title, which I don't need, but yet another title that's been tagged to me, which is I'm the CIO therapist, and there is a little bit of truth in that. Um, I mean, granted, it's a little tongue in cheek, but there's a little bit of truth in that, in that, as you said, Phil, it's gotta be a thought experiment around understanding the psychology of the human condition and understanding some of these factors and how that impacts us. You know, it's not just about technology, it's how we use it. You know, are you one of those people that you grab your phone and you're constantly on your phone and you're constantly in front of that screen or are you someone that's more prone to prefer, you know, face-to-face interactions? And so I think these are the kinds of things that we have to think about. Or the office environment, how do we help our teams as leaders? How do we create a culture and help our teams go through this really kind of questionable period in our lives? And everybody around the world has to deal with this right now. We're all confused, Every single one of us is confused. And so we have to figure out and be conscious and bring up the term flexibility again. We have to be flexible. We have to be empathetic. We have to understand people and take a moment to help them navigate this period. Um, it, it's not going to be trivial. It's definitely not going to be trivial, but you're absolutely right. This is not just about technology. I think technology for the sake of technology is not going to solve anything. Where do you stand, Tim, as far as all these pundits that are on the media nonstop talking about, you know, the virtual interfaces being the future, the workforce being totally disrupted, not wanting to come back into into offices, yet the older generation that's running uh, the Fortune 1000, they want everybody back in the office now because evidently COVID-19 is over with. Where, where do you stand as to what, what is reality? So I think reality is gonna hit those folks hard. Um, you know, if you look at the Fortune 500 and how technology has disrupted the Fortune 500 just over the, the past two to three decades, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Um, if you look at the the top uh, NYSE um, stocks that are being traded, the change that's taken place just over the last 20 years is pretty remarkable. I think this is just going to be another remarkable period where we're going to see a changing of wealth, a changing of focus. Um, you know, customers are going to walk with their feet because they can. Uh, technology has become front and center. Now I can pick up my phone and do just about anything. A uh, good example of this is just currency, money. So over the past, where are we now? 16 months, uh, almost 18 months in, I have not used cash. I have not kept cash in my wallet. And in fact, I've actually moved away from using physical credit cards unless absolutely necessary to actually using NFC and my Apple watch to pay for things. So a digital wallet. And so that's come up for a couple of reasons. One, it's touchless Two, it's easier. I mean, think about the drive-through experience. You know, I pull up the Starbucks, I stick my hand out, out the window and, and they scan it and I'm good to go. You know, I, that's pretty convenient. Um, 
So I think there's been this, this forced use of technology and how consumers and businesses are thinking about technology that will then drive change and culture around these organizations and how they perform work. And so for those organizations that want to stand firm with their old um, ways and methods of working, I think there's a harsh reality that's facing them in the very near future uh, if they're not already facing it right now today. The other piece to that, though, is we have to remember that as our customers change and and other aspects of the world and, and business change, we have to change as a business, too. And we have to change as, as leaders, not just technology leaders, as business leaders. And so, you know, a, a good friend of mine and a fellow CIO has said time and time again, she says, you know, what got us here won't get us there. And I think that's incredibly true. We can't rely on the ways we've done things in the past and expect it to just carry on into the future. We have to evolve. We evolve as humans. Our businesses have to evolve too, and our customers are evolving. So we have to find that that happy medium. And I would say there are a lot of balls up in the air and they're pretty clear as to the general direction they're coming down. Um, but unfortunately for those folks that, that want to go back to the way things were, I don't think we'll see that again. You're a technologist. Uh, you've been in the space for quite some time. What is some of the cool tech that you're working on and or see uh, to be the future. Yeah, so, so there's a lot of really cool tech that's coming down the pike that I think is really interesting. Now, there are some futurists that will talk about things that we might not see for five, 10 plus years, and that's great. Um, or things that, that might be, um, you know, maybe off in the shadows. And I think, you know, you look at things like quantum computing. I mean, that's just fascinating to me just really mind-blowing, fascinating to me, um, especially when you start thinking about data and you think about research computing and some of the opportunities for the average enterprise to do things that we've been doing in research computing, like with academic organizations for decades. Um, but the technologies that, that I've been looking at just recently that I think are really interesting, uh, and maybe this is just because of uh, the past week for me personally, one is the vehicle, it's the car. You know, even though we're not commuting as much, uh, we still have a car. Most of us do, at least here in California and in other parts of the U.S. and other parts of the world. And so I've had the opportunity to see some of the, the changes like to, to the digital cockpit and how the driving experience is changing, not just today, but what's coming down the pike. So, for example, Nabil, you and I are on the same road. You're five or 10 miles ahead of me. And all of a sudden there's an accident that takes place. You start to slow down. That data then gets fed in real time to my vehicle, which then affects my navigation, which then says in real time, didn't have to go to the cloud, didn't have to go to a third party processor that aggregates it, but then goes to my vehicle and says, hey, go to the right-hand lane and get off here and take this other route. Or bringing in weather information in real time, bringing in third-party information in real time. You know, the whole concept of the systems on a chip within the vehicle and bringing some of these systems together is really quite fascinating to me. Um, I've had had an opportunity to see this with, with a couple of companies recently. 
So that's one piece. Um, and then I just bought a new vehicle uh, this past weekend. So seeing that new digital cockpit, even me as a technologist, I'm still working through, okay, how do I leverage this? Because there's a lot of technology there that I'm still figuring out how I can use. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, come on, what you get? Uh, yeah, you so get? I I had a uh, Land Rover, uh, Range Rover Sport before, and I essentially just got a 2022 model of the same vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has the whole digital cockpit. You can kind of move navigation around to center screen where your dials are, or move the dials around. They're just computer screens now in your, crazy, in your vehicle. Right? It's, it's really fascinating, but there's a lot of connectivity that has to go with it. You know, in terms of your car connects to the internet, it has its own connection to the internet separate from your phone. Um, it's able to download software now and update itself. So you pull into your garage. I mean, Tesla has been doing this for some time, but now I can pull into my garage. It connects to my home network and will download updates for the vehicle while it's in the garage. This is a Land Rover. This isn't a Tesla. Right. And, that, and, and that's what's so amazing, right? They say you, it, it's no longer just a Tesla. They're all computers now. Every, that's every right. vehicle is now, is now you know, some type right. of computer. Yeah. But the other, the other technology that, that I'm really kind of keen on is all around AI. And I want to be clear about what I mean by that, because AI is not AI is not AI. I think we're seeing a lot of AI washing happening in the industry right now, similar to how we saw it with cloud. Um, everything's cloud, everything's AI, when maybe it's just analytics. Um, but there is this continuum of, of analytics to machine learning to AI. And even within the AI spectrum, you get to the far end, which is more cognitive, which is not what we're seeing. Um, AI can be incredibly powerful for doing things locally. I'm, I'm on the board of advisors for a startup that is able to, to really kind of do some fascinating things with AI within your phone. Um, and so I think we'll see more of that in solving some of these big problems and opening up possibilities, new possibilities that we haven't even thought of yet that we couldn't do through other means. Those are the things that I think are, are most interesting, especially when it applies to a large audience. So not, not the, the small niche um, opportunities, but rather things that, that we all will experience. The, um, the fact that all of these uh, elements of our lives are now computerized while unbelievably cool. I mean, the fact that you go in again, like you said, you go into a car these days and it looks like you're, you're, you know, uh, an Air Force pilot. Do you have a concern with a lot of the, you know, ransomware hacks and the disruption and some of the supply chain issues that all of the computerization of this underlying infrastructure has with it, not just inherent security risks that all technology has, but it puts like that security in some cases is not stewarded by, you know, people that tend to focus on it. Yep. Um, and you have this assumption that if you're working with a large company that they're going to use the best of the best, like SolarWinds as an example. Everyone, like all the government contractors use SolarWinds and then there's a SolarWinds hack and then, you know, that's up in smoke. Maybe we'll do yep. better next time. So how do, we, how, do, how do we reconcile that other than sticking our heads in the sand? Yeah, and, you know, we've this is something that does come up as a conversation point among CIOs and has for the last 12 months, which is great. We, we literally threw everybody out of the office, sent them home, 
we went out. I, I know a number of CIOs that told their staff, everyone on their staff, go to every big box store, office supply store, every place you can buy a laptop, keyboard, mouse, external monitor, webcam, just go buy it. Use your credit card, use the department P card, go buy it. Because they, they couldn't get computers fast enough through distribution for their entire staff. So now you have all of these non-standardized systems with non-standardized or protected images out in people's homes, which ostensibly are dirty networks to begin with. So now you've exposed- Speak for yourself, Tim. Well, I yeah, it's that's a whole nother conversation, right? <laughs> um, I'll need the therapy for that. But if you think about it, extrapolate that out to all of your employees. And so one of the conversations that has come up for some period of time is, we know that there is a significant risk by what we just did. And we kind of are hoping for the best. And we've tried to manage some of that through VPN and some of the tools that we use, but there are inherent risks to it. So I think there's one aspect that comes from just the tools that we sent home with people and the fact that they're working from home on these dirty networks. So that's one piece. The second piece to this is Think of all the smart homes. And I'll again, I'll use myself as an example. So one of the things we were able to do during the pandemic was we bought a new house where my wife and I both traveled before the pandemic. We're both home. We wanted a little more space. Great. So we're able to buy a new home. It was um, a new construction home. Now, one of the things that comes with that is an incredibly technologically sophisticated house. And so now it's not just a matter of, okay, you open up the, you take your key and you open up the door, but there's a lot of technology that's built into the house. I mean, how many people can say they have not one, but two fiber providers pulled up to the house. So I can pull fiber, gigabit fiber from two different providers, right from the side of my home. Um, In addition to that, you have all of this wired capability and wireless capability, as well as these smart devices, my garage door openers, my refrigerators, my ovens, my thermostats, all of this is connected to the internet. So take it a step further. Of course, I've taken precautions to protect my home, right? From technology risk. And I probably haven't done everything that I could do, But just imagine all the people that they're not technologically savvy. And so they're just connecting things up and going cool and hoping for the best. They don't, it's not, it's, that's not even fair. It's, it's more of, um, they're somewhat naive. They don't know the technology. They don't even know the risks that they're inherently connecting into in doing that. And so I do think that there is a responsibility that not just the homeowner has, but some of these providers need to be thinking about in terms of providing guidance for these folks. I'm not saying take on the liability, which none of them will do, but rather we have to find ways to help guide people. And I think this is where technology can really kind of step in is that how do we start to automate some of this and provide some of this technology and intelligence for these folks so they don't have to be 
total, you know, technology wizards to be able to run their own home. Right. And create a set of standards. Like if you're going to have these different things, then, you know, this is a fairly easy to look at checklist right now, even if you were interested and you did recognize that you had these problems, where do you even go to figure out what to do? You have to become a technologist just to put in place those, um, you know, those protections. Right. And I mean, case in point, one of my neighbors was having technology issues with their Wi-Fi network and it wasn't working quite right. And they knew that I worked in technology and asked if I would take a look and sure, you know, happy to help them out. And so went over and figured out what the issue was and, and helped kind of guide them through it. Okay. But who else can they go to now? They can go to, in our case, because they're new homes, we can go to the builder and go to their third party that they've brought in to do the technology stuff, but that only lasts for so long. And these are third-party folks that don't necessarily have the degree of expertise. Like, for example, I happened to be at our neighbor's house when they had this third party come in that did the actual installation. And I'm talking about SSIDs. I'm talking about channels for Wi-Fi. And the guy's looking at me as if I'm talking Greek. I, I mean, I was kind of floored, like, dude, you're supposed to be the expert here, not me. But if I can quickly stump you, me, after all of this time, and and I would say, you know, one of the things I did many years ago is I switched from a desktop to a laptop because I started to lose touch with the technology, the underlying technology bits where I didn't need to have to manage that. I don't want to have to manage it. I just want it to be plug and play so I can focus on other things. And we see this in IT organizations. We see this in our personal lives. And so we have to find ways to leverage technology in a more meaningful way. You know, it's kind of like, do you really want to give kind of bring this full circle to the education question? Do you want to bring it full circle to, or rather give everybody a full on windows desktop that they have to configure and think of all the different configuration settings that go with it? Or can we function out of a tablet or a Chromebook? that doesn't have as many configuration settings and therefore doesn't have as many things that can go wrong. I think we have to be thinking more along those lines as we go forward. I would say that there's some benefit to understanding the fundamentals of having gone through the the Windows configuration uh, hassles and the various blue screens of death in order to get, you know, the the experience and the comfort with uh, with how the technology works. The one thing I want to say also to go back to what you touched on is you can take the computer repair shop out of Tim Crawford, but you can't take uh, Tim Crawford out of the computer repair shop. You're uh, you're still that you're still that same guy. Still that same guy. You know, it, it's funny. You could probably go back to a recording of a call. I was on a, a group. This was last year. Um, I was on a group call with, I don't know, there must have been at least 20 CIOs on the call. And all of a sudden, my daughter walks in. It was last fall. My daughter walks in and I'm on video. So just imagine door opens. She walks in and I'm like, honey, I'm on, I'm on a call. And she goes, my computer doesn't work. And I'm like, excuse me. And so I have to exit, help her get connected because I knew she had an exam that day, but help her with her Chromebook and get reconnected back in and then come back and rejoin the call. So yeah, you you still yeah, everyone's, everyone's got to be their own. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> got to be their own CTO. My sister still calls me like, what what, what computer should I get? Like, yeah. haven't we gotten past this? Does it? Am I really still that guy? Yep. 
You uh, are. All right. And you Let's, always will be. I always, I always will be. <laughs> um, at this point, any hair I lose, I want to lose. I'd love uh, if you could, if you could find in the history of your career through the Stanford universities and the old cupboards and, 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 and all that stuff to where you are today as kind of a Tim Crawford for hire, you are mm-hmm. your own brand at this point, or is there, usually we ask like, if there's something that you would do differently, what would it be? But I think in, in, in your case, um, if there is something that you could point to, like an experience that you could point to that like just embodies your fascination with technology or your um, just the, your passion for, for technology that would resonate with even one member of our young audience, could you share something, something along those lines? You know, there was something early on and it kind of made me an oddball in IT organizations. Um, and that's saying something within an IT organization. It it does. And I always felt awkward. I mean, partly because I was on the younger end of things. And so, I mean, I was running an IT organization at 21. I was leading and responsible for making statements and judgments and strategies um, in my 20s that, frankly, most people would be in their 40s or 50s. Um, so I had some great opportunities over the course of my career. One of the things that I was always fascinated about was this intersection of business and technology and how technology fits in to solve business problems. And so as I kind of went through my career and, and I'd have these, these statements that would be made to me, hey, you know, go do this, go install that, you know, figure out how to solve this problem. I'd be asking myself, so how does this solve a business problem? Like, what's the business problem we're solving? And I'd constantly be told, shut up, Crawford, you know, just go do it, right? Um, that really made me this awkward oddball because I was interested in where technology connects in, not just tech for tech's sake, as many people were back in the 80s and 90s. And so you fast forward to today, and it's all about that, that connection between business and technology. We're long past the tech for tech sake. I mean, I see some of these folks um, today, some not as much younger folks, but maybe folks that are mid-career or latter parts of their career, and they're still stuck on the, hey, I want to know about the in-depth speeds and feeds of, of a particular technology. And I'm like, does it, does it still matter? I mean, where, where does that kind of fit in as you connect it up to a business outcome? And if you can connect it, then great. You know, if you're Amazon or Microsoft and you're doing this at scale, then yes, those details matter. If you're a mom and pop shop, does it really matter? Like I I was having a conversation with a a friend of mine who's a CIO yesterday, and we were talking about this and I'm like, you know, why do you even need technology if you're a smaller company or mid-market company? I mean, do it all in the cloud and call it a day. There, there are mature solutions that allow you to run a business and use technology without having a look at technology within your office, other than the network and the end device, of course. So I would say that first and foremost, understand that connection between business and technology, because that will help you relate to those outside of IT, which is ultimately why you exist in the first place. And then the second piece is, and this is something that, that will hold true regardless of what aspect of technology you're working in. It'll hold true regardless of where you are in your career. It'll hold true um, regardless of the industry. And that is think about data. 
think about the role of data and how that becomes valuable to whatever problem you're solving. And so if you just look at those two pieces, I mean, there, there's a long list of things that I would say um, are really kind of relevant, but those two pieces were two pieces that, that I've been interested in and have kind of served me well over the course of my career. And I think they're even more important today as you think about the young folks that are coming into the industry and thinking about, okay, where do I go and what choices do I make? Tim, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Really enjoyed the conversation. Enjoyed having you on the Nomad Futures podcast. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. And soon in person. I don't know where, I don't know when, but it's going to happen. Looking forward to that as well. (laughs) (laughs) This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Marcus will come back currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.